Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I really enjoyed the Sunday school lesson this morning. And I uh, used to have a good uh, pastor friend. He would talk about law, order, and design. And that was really impressed upon our upon us today in that class, I think. And then after the class, I went into the restroom and looked in the mirror at my hair, and I thought, law, order, and design, what? <laughs> where did all that go? Um, anyway, you know, the earth is under a curse, but it's going to all be straightened out one day. What did my hair look like then? All right, uh, Philippians chapter 1 uh, it's been my habit for, I don't know how many years, maybe a, a few decades at Calvary, in the first month of the year to preach on some, just some basic things, review them every year, reading your Bible, praying, being a witness, being in church. And I've pretty much done that this year at Calvary, but the Lord impressed me to preach on love. I thought I was going to do a few more messages, but this is one of those. And um, we're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 1 and then focus on the last few of them. But um, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And it is, it is a privilege, a real joy to be here today. Uh, it's good to see you folks, pray for you, and uh, really appreciate this church your pastor and his wife, my, their, their son, one that married my daughter, um, and the rest of the family too, even Bethany. But uh, anyway, <laughs> okay, verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. So this morning I want to preach on the necessity of discernment for abounding love. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for your presence here, Lord. And we've already sang and asked you to speak to us and to make us here even. But I pray that we would be, um, we would receive the grace, the teaching, the reproof, whatever that we need today, and that you would be glorified by it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul has been considered by many people as the supreme example of a servant of Jesus Christ. And of course, none of us really has the ability to make that kind of evaluation, to really know who has been the greatest servant of the Lord. However, Paul, of course, was chosen by God to write 
most or more than of the New Testament than any other person. And uh, the greatest, he has the greatest coverage of his ministry in the book of Acts. It's basically about his work and so forth. And as we look at these, what the Bible says about Paul, we definitely see him being presented as a, a man that's fully surrendered to God. Uh, he's mature in his faith. He basically has a supreme knowledge of the will of God by direct revelation from God. And he is the man that God chose to write the greatest definition of true godly love, which we have in 1 Corinthians 13. But Paul, I believe, did not just write about godlike love. I believe that he lived it. And I think that's demonstrated in his letter here to the church at Philippi. Uh, the purity, the fervency, the beauty of his love is obvious in this, these first few verses alone in his, his letter to them. Again, verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record... How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. So just in these first two verses there, Paul desires grace and peace for the saints, the pastors and the deacons at this church. And again, that's in spite of the fact that, that Paul's in prison right then and himself. Not He didn't have air conditioning, three squares and things like they have in prison today, but He's thinking about these folks praying for them. In verses 3 to 5, Paul communicates that he often thinks of them. He prays for them. He thanks God for their fellowship that he has with them. And in verse 6, he says, I'm absolutely confident that the Lord is going to continue His work in you. You're going to, he's going to go on in your lives. Verse 7 and his 8, he says that they are in His heart and that he loves them because of their faithfulness in the gospel. He longs for them. That's not, that's not template, typically what a, a male says to other males. Of course, there's a whole church, but he's, he says, I, I long for you, their fellowship. Their, he wants their success in, in their walk with Christ and so forth. And when you read the, this short letter, you understand the church at Philippi was a good church. It was a good church. Not a lot of reproofs in here. There are a lot of, you know, of course, instruction, but not reproof. Not like the church at Corinth or something. But notice what Paul says that he prays for them in verse 9. He says, In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. Now, they had true Christian love. Um... And yet he wants them to abound. He wants to abound more and more. He wants their love to be overflowing and so forth. However, he says that if that is going to happen, if, if true godlike love is going to abound more and more, their love needed to grow in two key areas. They needed greater knowledge of God and of His truth, and their love needed to grow in judgment or discernment. So again, verse 9, In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now folks, these two qualities, they weren't just needed at Philippi. It's a good church. And not just the love of the Philippian church there, but they are to be essential. They are essential for the love of all Christians. So if they needed to grow in this area, he wanted them abound. This is no doubt something we need. Uh, it, it is something we need. And our love is not acceptable to God, really, unless it's patterned after a righteous knowledge of His will, 
and after holy discernment that guides our actions so that we are actually uh, acting in Christian love. And, and so my question to you as we kind of start this thing this morning is, do you have love that is built upon a scriptural knowledge of God and that is guided by holy judgment? Um, well, each of us in our homes and this church, our Calvary, but uh, Lighthouse as well, we need to abound in this type of love. And particularly with the way that our society is going, uh, it seems like all we can read about or see in the news is hate. So we need this kind of love. We need it to abound. And uh, the first thing I want us to note here is in this chapter, we'll go to a couple other places, but there is a critical demand for this abounding love. And again, I'm going to read verses 9 to 11. This is what we're going to focus on. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That, so this is the outcome, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. So, again, Paul prays that their God-like love would abound, it would increase and overflow. Um, what he talks about there, that type of love is, you know, all of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It's really defined there. And in, in the Greek language, there are three different words for love. Probably heard those at some time or another. Agape. Phile, and then eros. Now, the word eros doesn't appear in the New Testament. But phile is what we would call genuine, passionate love, usually for a close friend. It is used in the New Testament both of Christians and of God. God has that type of love as well. However, the most used love to describe, the word most used to describe God's love is the word agape. And I think the simplest definition for that is, is the verse John 3, 16. For God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son and the purpose that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So godly love is righteous, but it gives sacrificially for the eternal well-being of other people. That's the simplest thing of it. So John 3.16, I really believe, defines that. Uh, that is a godlike love. And the members of the church at Philippi had this love, but he's saying, I want you to abound. You need to grow more in this and to be more characterized by certain qualities in your love. And this is, this is definitely true of, of all people, uh, particularly Christians in America today. But if it was gonna, if, it, if their love is gonna remain godlike, there, as I said, there were these two key areas that need to grow. Verse nine: This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge, and in all judgment. So knowledge is a compound word that means a thorough knowledge, a thorough knowledge of God, who He is, what He's like, what His will is. Really, the truth of the Word of God would be that knowledge. And then he says judgment, and that has basically the idea of, of discerning, evaluating something. Uh, that word only appears, that Greek word only appears one time in the New Testament, but it's referring to clear spiritual perception, uh, making righteous decisions, righteous choices. And uh, even though it only appears once here, that comes from the uh, shares root with another word that appears that kind of gives some, some uh, help us understand what it is. Luke 9, 45 says, And they understood not this saying, and it was hid for them, that they perceived it not. So there's the root, similar root word. They perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. So again, this understanding, this discernment. And also in uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses. It's the word senses here. 
senses exercise to discern both good and evil. So even though the word sense is there, it has the word discern in there, our, our ability to rightly judge and evaluate things, really according to the knowledge of God. And so love, for example, can be innocent somewhat and yet naive. In other words, you, you may or I may love someone or something and yet we don't immediately perceive and reject evil. We can want to do good. We want to do well. Uh, a situation like that, if, if, you're, if you don't have proper discernment, you may be trying to do well, trying to carry out love and really get yourself in a lot of trouble. Um, it can bring spiritual and eternal disaster to ourselves and to others and to God's work. And this is a common condition, particularly among immature or untaught Christians. Uh, a lot of times, you know, somebody gets saved and their whole outlook changes, but now they think everybody's good and everybody's going to love me. <laughs> it's just naive. It doesn't have this knowledge and discernment. And the fruit of this love has qualities, I'm talking about the, the love that he wants them to have, uh, it has qualities that are laid out in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, it says, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So, He's telling us that godly love does not approve things that are not holy. He does not approve actions that are rebellious. Um, rather, what agape is, it's, it's particular. It's careful. It evaluates and it judges life by the Bible. It doesn't judge life or people or whatever by things that appeal to me or appeal to a lost person uh, or that looks good to the unsaved world. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, you do err not knowing the scriptures of the power of God. So if, if we don't know how to discern properly, we, we can give our allegiance to things or to people that are detrimental to us. Uh, John seven twenty-four, Jesus says, judge uh, righteous judgment. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Um, many professing Christians do things that they think are good. But a lot of times we look at them and say, let's direct uh, disobedience to the Bible. And yet they, they think that they're doing well. For example, uh, Christian people or churches or Christian ministries, they're all over the United States and they'll... They'll take the tithes of the church and they may uh, help the poor. That's, that's what they think they're doing. Or they're trying to fight government oppression, uh, educate children or whatever. But, you know, I'm, I've been living 65 years now. <laughs> and it, I thought if these... Christians and Christian ministries would just do some simple evaluation of these ministries and so forth they're supporting, they'd find out that that's a Marxist terrorist organization that they think they're helping people with. And I'm not making this up. This is, this is serious what denominations and stuff in the United States do. United Methodist Church. They're about to split, you know, because their promotion of homosexuality. The United States... United Methodists are, but in Africa, actually, they're more conservative there, so it's going to be a big split, probably. But there's an example of that, or uh, they, they're saying, they think they're helping the poor, feeding some people, but really they're helping drug addicts to continue to, you know, to, to carry on in the drug trade or you know, educate children. Well, they're teaching them to actually hate God, but if they, they just they don't have discernment. They don't have knowledge of God and what His will is. And so love practices Bible judgment and it approves excellence. Works that fulfill Bible teaching. Works that please God. Works that build holiness. 
And so really, if the, the, the major outcome of this type of love is that what we do uh, causes people to be saved and to live righteously and to glorify God. Verse 10, that you may prove things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. And this is a type of love that God demands and that He wants to abound in our lives. Now, so we talked about that, but I want us to go and look at the authoritative example, the Bible example of how to destroy love. And that goes back to Genesis chapter 2. So let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're just going to look at the last verse there, but read on into chapter 3. So Genesis 2.25 says this. This is Adam and his wife, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with him her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I, I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest me, uh, gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You'd rather have your, head, your skull cracked or the heel hurt. Well, a, bad, a cracked heel is not too good, but if you've got your head cracked open, that's far worse. Obviously, the Lord Jesus is going to destroy Satan's work, but let's continue on. Verse 16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast eaten... Uh, has, excuse me, has hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it thou hast taken for, that, for dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God 
make coats of skins and clothe them. For the first, that's the first shedding of blood and a covering for sin. Now, as we heard again in Sunday school, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect word, a world. There was no, this is kind of hard to imagine, but there was no exposure to evil. The reason I read verse 25 of chapter 2 is because there was absolutely nothing to divide them. There wasn't anything to be ashamed of. There was no disagreements. There was nothing. There was nothing like that. It is a perfect world, absolutely perfect. But before this time, Satan had already rebelled against God. But Eve had never experienced someone trying to get her to do evil. That that was totally foreign to her. She was totally naive about that. Now, she had instruction from God about not eating. I think she got that from Adam because before it talks about creating Eve, uh, in, uh, let's see, in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, and of course that could refer to both of them, but Eve's not been made yet. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the trees of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And then it starts uh, talking about God making Eve. So, Eve had never been lied to. I mean, she didn't even have any concept of a lie. And yet, in verse um, 4, let's see, well, the first four verses here of chapter 3, serpent was subtle. She, he comes in verse 1 and asks, Yea, hath God said, did God really say this? You should not eat of every tree of the garden. She, he gives her the proper answer. We may eat of all the trees except for the one in the middle of the garden. And uh, tells him what the penalty is. And again, she no doubt heard that from Adam. Verse 4 says, And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. So a direct contradiction of the truth that God had given to them. And she believed Satan against God. In fact, she believed that God's command deprived her of something that was good. Verse 4. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. She had no reason to doubt God. But Satan deceived her. Satan deceived her and he, she rejected God's command. Now look again at this verse 6. This is key. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she was convinced it's good for food. And obviously it was pleasant to the eyes. And not only that, but Satan said it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. So she ate. And she gave it to her husband. And he ate. Now, I want you to think about that. This was a wicked decision by Eve, but she was deceived. And the Bible clearly says that. Let me read, you can just stay here. Let me read to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. This is talking about, this is a pastoral letter Paul writes to Timothy. And he says, Let the, the woman, so women in general, learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first, uh, was first formed, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, 
true, pure, godlike love is formed and it's defined by obedience to the Word of God. I'll, I'll mention that again this afternoon. But John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what love is. is keeping the commands of God. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, Paul, Peter writes, and he says this to this letter sent to several churches. It says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto what? Unfeigned love. As you've obeyed and the Holy Spirit's work in you, it's produced true, genuine love of the brethren. And then he says, See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So we, our, our love grows pure and becomes more godlike as we obey the word of God. And that's, that's really what it is. Now, Eve, though, rejected God's word and the instruction of her husband. Unbelief, therefore, is a perverted product of a lack of love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, describing love, it says, Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now, if we read that without passages like Philippians 1, we say it believes everything. No, (laughs) that's not what it's saying. It believes what's true and what's right. It holds on to that. It has discernment. God-like love does. Biblical love does. So, when Eve's deception led to her sin, her sin then led her to tempt Adam to sin. Oh, it's good for food. Well, it sure is pretty. And, and it'll give me wisdom. She eats of it. She, do, she, doesn't, she believes Satan over God. And then she gives to her husband. And it says, and he did eat. Now, so her temptation of Adam, her sin led to her temptation of Adam. And that... He sinned, and that brought the spiritual death of Adam, their children, and everybody's lived since then. It destroyed her pure love toward her husband. But his sin also destroyed his love for her. Um, But... Adam, I want to make this clear, Adam did not sin because Eve did. Adam made his own choice. And I tried to emphasize this when I read it, but the last part of verse 6 says, and he did eat. I mean, she didn't... (laughs) Honey, I love you. Get this. Well, we don't know if it's apple or orange, you know whatever kind of fruit it was. She didn't force him to eat that. He made the decision. He chose to eat. And as a result, he brought death to the whole world. Now, I want to read, I read from 1 Timothy 2. Note this. Uh, Again, let's see if I've got that on. Uh, It says... And we'll turn back there. First Timothy chapter two. It says, "And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Well, Adam was in the transgression too, but he wasn't deceived. He wasn't fooled. He knew exactly what he was doing." He hadn't been deceived that this was going to be good for them. He knew it was evil. He knew it was wrong, but he did it anyway. And that's a a big difference. The Bible says that Eve was deceived. And that's, of course, that ends up being a reason for not having uh, females be the teachers. So Adam was Eve's head, 
He was the head of all the human race. If he, if he had said no, if he'd have refused to sin, he wouldn't have become a sinner. He would not have passed sin and death into all mankind. Say so you're speculating. No, I'm not. Romans 5.12 Wherefore by one man sin entered into the world and death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Adam's responsible. They call that, he's, you know, theology. He called, called him being the, the federal head. But the thing about it is what we're talking about here is the sin of Adam and Eve destroyed their love toward God. In verse 7 and 8, they had had perfect fellowship with God up to that time. The impression that every evening God would stop by to see them. They would spend time together. But not this day. They were hiding. Perfect love casteth out fear, but they were scared of God at this point because they had, they had disobeyed Him. Uh, not only that, not only their love for God, but toward each other. Look at verse 11 and 12 here in Genesis. He said, unto th- Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Before, there, there were no secrets, there was no you know, man and woman type thing. You know, <laughs> They were in perfect communication. But now Adam says, it's her fault. And he blames her for the decision that he made. He blames her for the consequence of their relationship with God. That's, that's not love. Now, this is what I've said is the authoritative example of the destruction of godly love. The woman was deceived about what's right and wrong. She did choose to rebel against her husband and God. The Bible doesn't really go into that. She tried to get her husband to join her in rebellion. However, it's the man's responsibility to do right regardless, to lead his wife and family and so forth. No man can blame his wife when he chooses to do wrong. Now, we all try that, (laughs) but it's not going to work with God. And so in Colossians and other passages, Colossians 3, for example, verse 18 to 21, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. This is love. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And these things all come about because we don't love. Sin ruins our love. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. That's kind of the opposite of blaming them, as unto the weaker vessel, being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Hmm, That is a serious consequence. However, what happens in the family, according to 1 Timothy 2, is that whatever family decisions are, that directly affects churches. And so he says, listen, You shouldn't have women teaching in the church because the way God created them, they don't have the discernment that the man does. The woman can be more easily discerned. I say certainly men are deceived all the time as well. But females are more easily deceived. But Adam knowingly chose to do wrong. And so it says, he goes on to say about women can be saved through childbirth. I'll just 
to me, the simplest answer of what does that mean is if you have children, you have families and that kind of things, it keeps you away from feminism. It saves you from a life of rejecting God's plan. That's what it means. I'm not talking about being saved. I know there's another interpretation, but I don't, I don't think it makes sense. But anyway, so God gives this unmistakable explanation of why He forbids female leadership in the church. Is the, but here, here's what the real question is. Are men and women going to obey God because they love Him? And are we going to grow in our love to each other as we grow in knowledge and judgment? You know, somebody might come to church like Lighthouse or Calvary and whatever and say, that's not a very loving church. They're judgmental. Well, the Bible says you can't love like God unless you are judgmental. If you don't judge things, if you don't evaluate things by what the Bible says, if you don't have discernment, oh yeah, you may be happy, 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 but you can do in all kind of things that are offending God. So are we going to obey God? Ladies, do you slander God by saying that biblical obedience and standards deprive you of something? Yeah, they're just trying to keep the women, you know, under all the suppression. That's what those Christians do, those Bible believers. Are you trying to manipulate your father or your husband to do what he knows is wrong? He's heard it preached. He's read it in the Bible. Men, are you going to give in your wife's attitudes and criticisms? And are you going to give up spiritual headship, leadership of your wife and children? Do you blame your wife? Do you exhibit bitterness toward your wife for decisions that you make? Do you understand that God holds you accountable as a man for the conduct and the attitudes and the convictions held in your home? I mean, obviously, at some point when they just rebel, there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but folks, if we, if the love within our church, this church, at Calvary or wherever, is going to abound, if it's going to be good, it has to grow in biblical judgment. Now, I've still got another hour or so, right? Real succinctly, I'm going to give the basic ways that we have judgment and knowledge in a church or in our home or in our individual lives because God's given us a pattern for that. How do we, get, how do we know what love is? <clears throat> how do we develop discernment? Well, the first thing we need is a, a divine standard of truth. We don't know what right and wrong is unless we know what the Bible teaches. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. Not many pure things on this earth. And Jesus said in Luke 4 verse 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It doesn't make any difference what the latest trends are or the latest philosophies and so forth. We have a perfect standard of love in the Bible. We've got to know it. We've got to obey it. And frankly, it's just like in any other field. The more right decisions you make, the more you learn about that particular subject. The only way you can get discernment and have true biblical love is by obeying the Word of God. And then you get more discernment. Every time you make the right decision, you get more discernment. You get more biblical love. So it starts and really starts and ends with the individual. But the next thing the Bible sets up is scriptural pastors shepherding scriptural churches. Let me read from Ephesians 4. I'm just going through this quickly. 
And he gave, God gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and then notice this, some pastors and teachers. So that last one is referring to the person or same people. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, so that those pastors and teachers are perfecting the saints in the church. Remember here in Philippians 1, 1, he said the saints, the bishops, and the deacons. The bishops, pastor. So the pastors perfect the saints for they do the work of the ministry. This brings the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Look, for the first three or four years of my Christian life, I was reading the Bible, and not too long ago I got saved, I was reading the Bible every day. But the first time I got into a New Testament Baptist church, my discernment went from maybe a little better than other professing Christians to... I mean, I walked into church and here these people have been living for God and obeying the Bible for a while and all of a sudden I realized I didn't know nothing. And this, this is what happens in the church. In 1 Peter 5, 2, Feed the flock of God which is among you, talking to the taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. So you got this flock of God's people and the pastor's overseeing it, and then, like Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort with all re- and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise it. So you get somebody say, they make up their mind to obey the Word of God. Then they shortly, hopefully, right after they're baptized, added to the church, and they've got a, a, they're in a scriptural church, saved people, follow the Bible, and they've got and that God is gifted, or maybe a few men. Who are pastors? God has gifted them to teach, understand, and teach the Bible. But with that, you got to have saved congregation who is submitting to scriptural pastors. I mean, if, if your church is just one, come one all, come one, come all, and everybody who wants to join, we're glad to have you. That's not a scriptural church. You've got to have a saved congregation. Saints, as he calls them in Philippians 1. 1. And, and he commands churches, 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders that rule well. That means they don't know the latest scheme about trying to get people in. People that rule, pastors that rule well are people who know the Bible and say this is where we're going to do it. They're to be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And then, of course, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. But that's unprofitable for who? For you. <laughs> and so, this is the thing. So, And I'll just add one last one. So we've got a perfect standard, divine truth. We've got scriptural pastors shepherding scriptural churches. That's a saved congregation that submits to scriptural pastors and then biblical submission in Christian homes. In Ephesians 5, you know, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. It says, Husbands, love your wives. The man is to be working to sanctify the members of his, church, his family, his wife first. Then in chapter 6, it says uh, that children obey their parents. And the, the dad gets the primary responsibility of bringing them up in the nurture. That's discipline. Some of you might be a wooden spoon. You know, the, the discipline and admonition, the instruction of the, of the Lord. Now, this is what I, I told our church. This year, Calvary needs to grow in Christian love. I mean... There, there used to be a lot more knowledge of what love was in the United States because of the preaching of the Bible. That's, that's just totally departed. 
And it's affects, it affects all of us. Again, you, you get up and read and you think of it. How could these people do these things to each other? So to fight off that influence, this church, like our church, needs to grow in Christian love and we need to have a church filled with the fruits of righteousness. We need families, but especially men, who are going to grow in knowledge of the truth. Men will have spiritual discernment because they approve excellent biblical conduct in, in themselves and in their homes. This is, this is the kind of, you know, and people talk about, I had this teacher, she was the meanest woman. I love that woman. They didn't say that when they were underneath her. But, you know, they have a teacher that made them do right and made them pursue excellence and stuff like that. Well, that's the way it is in homes a lot of times. We don't really understand as, as parents who are a godly dad and a godly mom who uh, made us do right. And then later we think about all the things that it kept us from destroying our lives just because they loved us. And they weren't reading Dr. Spock and all them. That's not, you young people, that's not a reference to, um, what's that TV show? It's not Star Trek. Dr. Spock was a real influential psychologist, and he, he said that spanking is one of the worst things. I, we had a neighbor that her parents read that. Oh, man. When she got married, it lasted three days. That's because of her parents. But anyway, but we need to grow in love so we approve what's excellent. We need women who will submit to spiritual leadership in the church and in their homes. We need children, young people, to make up our minds to obey godly parents. And really, I mean, all of us got some different role in here. What are you going to do? Are you going to receive with meekness the engrafted word? It won't be engrafted if you don't receive with meekness. You're going to receive with meekness the engrafted word from, from a, a preacher who's preaching the Bible that's so... I mean, even the words are old in our translation. But it's not hard to understand. I'll tell you what. This discernment thing is this. If you do what you understand... Pretty soon you're going to understand a whole lot more. I hope we'll make a decision. I hope you'll make a decision. It's one of the most wonderful things as a pastor, a shepherd, or just being a fellow church member, is to see somebody in the church who they're, you know, they're kind of there, but all of a sudden they get serious about doing what the Bible says. And, they, and you see the changes in every area of their life, their lives. It's just what a blessing that is. And I'm going to tell you who this is the greatest blessing to us is the person that makes that, that decision. And God gives His blessing.